with that, go ahead and open up your Bibles to the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel 19 is where we're at today. If you don't have a Bible and you need one, there should be one in the pew in front of you. Or also, uh, you can use the YouVersion Bible app. Uh, if you just open up your smartphone or tablet, go to the events under YouVersion, you should be able to find the event there. It'll have the scriptures and some notes in there for you as well. Uh, and also, if you use the YouVersion Bible app, I don't know if you knew this, you can actually save the events and all your notes will be associated with it if you take notes in the app as well. It'll save it for you there. If you're online, welcome. We're glad you're joining us as well. Uh, you should have a link in YouTube or Facebook to be able to connect with that YouVersion Bible app as well. My name is Cody. I'm the pastor here at Redemption. It's my privilege and honor to serve you in the scriptures. I'm so excited to be able to open God's word with you today and to see what God has for us. 1 Samuel 19 is where we're at. We're looking at the second half of chapter 19, verses 11 through 24. Now, a couple of Sundays ago, my family and I got out of town. Uh, we left right after service. Uh, you know, we, we, I think we left somewhere around 2 o'clock. And we were going out of town to go to Southern California to go to a pastor's conference. And then uh, we tacked on, if you know my wife, we tacked on a couple of Disney days uh, at the end of that. Because if we're near Disney, it's just going to happen. Um, and so you can pray for me. I'm constantly in debt. Um, so the... That's just the way. Anyway, so we're going, we're leaving, uh, all right? So if you, know, if you know about this, I-70 ends up getting closed because of a mudslide, all right? We are literally like, if we were 20 minutes earlier, we might have gotten hit by the mudslide. Like, that's how close we were to it. We're about 30 cars back, something like that, 20, 30 cars back from the very first car to be stopped at the mudslide. So we sit there for, I don't know, an hour or so, and then they turn traffic around, right? So we're going back no longer west on I-70, now we're going east on I-70. And, you know, we're like, all right, what are we going to do? So we Google a new and alternate route. They said, hey, there's, there's a detour take it. That's basically the information we were given. Go east and take the detour. So we Google, you know, new route. And then we did what you probably do. We followed the blue line. Uh, and so we follow the blue line and, you know, it goes in, we go through this, it's like a, a forest trail that's, you know, kind of, you know, like a dirt road. It's not, not, it's just not maintained, you know, or it's, it's, it's actually maintained. It's, it's fairly nice. And then it turns into something like a Jeep trail, right? And uh, so I'm in a minivan, with my wife and four daughters trying to traverse a Jeep trail, right? And you're thinking, why? What is wrong with you? I'm thinking the same thing. Uh, I, I agree. And so, you know, basically we're, we're on this thing kind of past the point of no return. You know where you're like, the best thing for us to do is keep moving forward, right? The map said, just go two miles and then, you know, there's a turn. And we're like, all right, this, this must, Google led us here. This must be just a little rough patch and then we'll get back to the maintained road and then we'll get back to the pavement. And what we didn't realize was that two miles turned then into another three mile trail, which then turned into another 12 mile trail. Uh, we didn't realize that. And so we're traveling down this road and, uh, and that now it's getting dark and now we're wondering what's going on. And uh, we have now a trail of other people behind us. There's about eight or 10 other cars behind us that are doing the same thing, okay? So I'm not as big a moron as you might think. There are other morons with me, all right? So we're, we're traveling along. We get to one spot. There's a massive kind of mud bog that, that's happened here. And I'm at the front of this thing. And so everyone else is like, we're just following the minivan. Like, it's a hilarious. There's like lifted trucks and Jeeps following the minivan. 
Uh, and so we get to it, and it's funny, the kids, they, they make, not make fun of us, but they remember this because I stop and I pray, Lord, guide my hands. And then I hit the gas and we go and I immediately get stuck, literally two seconds later. <laughs> so either the Lord does not hear my prayers or that was an answer to prayer. Later on, we found out after we tried to, you know, dig the car out of the mud, we're trying to like stick stuff under the tires, all sorts of things. We, we spent about 30, 45 minutes or so uh, trying to get our car out. It's not coming out. It is stuck. Uh, and so we make the decision, we're going to abandon our car. All right. So there's other people. This guy says, hey, throw all your stuff in my truck and you got, we'll drive you guys down. So we literally took everything out of our car, put it in his truck, and uh, we begin moving down. Which, by the way, I, did I tell you we were in a big giant mud pile? If you know anything about me, I have this problem with Jordan's shoes. I'm wearing Jordans as I'm walking through. Like, they are destroyed. Oh, I'm sad about these shoes. So hopefully the Lord will help me revive them. Um, but uh, they're still in a bag. I haven't had time or the heart to be able to try to clean them. This is a really long intro, but I'm going somewhere, okay? So we get, we get to the point to where, you know, we're in this, ha, Micah and three of our girls are in this random guy's truck that I've only met 20 seconds ago trying to get my car unstuck. And I'm in another car with our oldest daughter in, uh, you know, following them. And we're going down this ne next 12 plus miles, right? Our car gets stuck around midnight, uh, and uh, we travel down, we get down to Glenwood Springs at about uh, 3.30 in the morning. All right, so it's a long, hard trail. All right, we get down to Glenwood Springs, and guess what? There's no hotels because everybody else is stuck too, right? Like I-70 is closed both ways. There's no hotels. We spend half an hour. We finally find a hotel. We take like a, I don't know, four or five-hour nap and, uh, and wake up and uh, try to figure out what we're going to do the next day. And, and through all this, we're basically just thinking like, what? We need to just turn around and go home. Uh, we're just, we're done. We're done with this trip. Apparently, the Lord does not want us to be able to go on to this, this conference. And we decide we're just going to go home. Well, I-70 is still closed. And there's no cars to rent. There's, we just can't, we, there's, we're stuck. There's nowhere to go. So we start trying to think and we're praying. And, and this is super stressful, right? Like we're just, every second is another problem to try to, uh, to, try to figure out how to, uh, to fix. Well, and, and in the middle of the night, we're constantly waking up because any little sound, you remember, you know, I'm destroying my car. It's like getting banged up. And so, so anyway, um, we, we end up getting, uh, you know, getting going. We, we find another car in uh, Grand Junction, which is an hour west. We're like, okay, we can rent a car there. So what do we do? Well, we got a taxi from Glenwood Springs to Grand Junction. That was a very expensive taxi ride. <laughs> But the guy showed up in a minivan, right? So the taxi was a minivan. We put everyone in the minivan. My plan was to go get the car, drive back. It was, it was going to be insane. So we get the car, and then we start driving. And the rest of our trip was epic from there. But that first 24 hours was absolutely crazy, absolutely crazy, to where in the morning when we're sitting in the hotel room, I gathered all the family together and just wanted to tell my girls about how, pr how proud I was of them because of how they handled themselves. And our whole family is breaking down in tears, just crying over the situation and all the stress that we had to go underdo, undergo and go through. And my girls told me one by one about how much God had done in them through that situation about how they had questioned whether or not their faith was real before, but now having gone through this, that God had solidified their faith in a tremendous way. 
that God had done something new within them where they, they basically said, you know, we've kind of had an easy life. We haven't really had to worry about much. You guys have, you, our parents have taken really good care of us. And now we've had this tremendous situation and pressure come upon us. And what did we do? We cried out to the Lord. And the Lord took care of us and he provided for us in ways that we never could have even asked for and he provided before we even asked for it. You see, if our car hadn't gotten stuck when it did, it would have gotten stuck not very long after and it would have gotten stuck in a place that would have caused everybody else to get stuck. The Lord actually stuck our car in the mud so that we could get down off of the mountain and everybody else could as well. It was a, it was a tremendous gift of God's grace. And here's something else that's pretty crazy. As we left, as we continued on our trip to go west, which seemed silly and ridiculous to us, we were, uh, we were able to have this wild experience in all this, but... Uh, even though we nearly turned around, at this conference, God miraculously restored two different seven-year broken relationships, like severely broken relationships, to the point to where they were beyond hope, and now they are restored beyond explanation. Like miraculously, Jesus showed up, softened things, just in a moment was able to turn it all around. I don't, I don't have the words to explain it to you other than to say that God did this crazy thing. You see, sometimes God takes you down rough roads that hurt. You ever been down a road like that? Been down a rough road that hurts? You get stuck. You didn't expect to. You ask God to do something and he does the opposite. When I said God guide my hands, I wasn't saying stick me in the mud. That wasn't what was in my head. But that's exactly what he did and it was the right thing to do. You see, sometimes God, God does that. Those kinds of things. Well, as we were able to, to get our van stuck, someone else got it off the mountain for us, a great friend of ours. He, he actually was here, Paul Hammontree. He was here over the summer and preached for me. Uh, and uh, so he got our, our van down, and it still drives today, praise the Lord. I have no idea how. Uh, we have an, uh, you know, we're going to take it to a mechanic. We have an appointment for it to get looked at. But God works in our, wise, our lives in these ways. And David is on the road to the throne here in 1 Samuel, but God here in chapter 19 is going to take him on a detour. God's going to move him on a detour in a totally different way than he would have chosen. Though I'm sure he's going to want to quit many times, God gives him the fortitude and the perseverance to keep going. Because through this painful detour, God is going to take David and turn him into the man that he wants him to be. That, that he's a man who worships and trusts the Lord at all times. Even when things get derailed, even when he makes bad choices, even when he does the wrong thing, he still becomes this man that worships and trusts the Lord at all times in all ways. So here's our big idea as we look at 1 Samuel 19 verses 11 through 24 together today. It's this, selfish ambition and envy will drive you into sins that once seemed impossible. Selfish ambition and envy is going to drive you into sins. They once seemed impossible with stuff that you would never consider before, but you'll be in it through these things of selfish ambition and envy. So let's read 1 Samuel 19, verses 11 through 24, and then we'll go back through and break it down. Look at verse 11. It says this, Saul also sent messengers to David's house to watch him and to kill him in the morning. And Michal, David's wife, told him, saying, If you do not save your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michal and David uh, let David down through a window, and he went and fled and escaped. And Michal took an image and laid it in the bed and put a cover of goat's hair for its head and covered it with clothes. So when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, he's sick. Then Saul sent the messengers back to see David, saying, bring him up to me in the bed that I may kill him. 
And when the messengers had come in, there was the image in the bed with a cover of goat's hair for its head. Then Saul said to Michal, why have you deceived me like this and sent my enemy away so that he has escaped? And Michal answered Saul, he said to me, let me go. Why should I kill you? So David fled and escaped and went to Samuel in Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and stayed in Naoth. Now, it was told Saul, saying, Take note, David is in Naoth in Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David. And when they saw the group of prophets prophesying and Saul standing as leader over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. And when Saul was told, he sent other messengers, and they prophesied likewise. Then Saul sent messengers again the third time, and they prophesied also. Then he also went to Ramah and came to the great well that's at Seku. And so he asked and said, where are Samuel and David? And someone said, indeed, they are at Naoth and Ramah. So he went there to Naoth and Ramah. Then the Spirit of God was upon him also. And he went on and prophesied until he came to Naoth and Ramah. And he also stripped off, all his, clo- stripped off his clothes and prophesied before Samuel in like manner and lay down naked all that day and all that night. Therefore, they say, is Saul also among the prophets? Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning thanking you for your greatness, for your goodness, for your glory. God, thank you for the way that you meet with us in your word. And we pray that today you would show us who you are and how great you are. And that we would become uh, just more infatuated with your glory, that we would become uh, more enlightened by your spirit, that you would show us uh, the greatness of your glory and your splendor. And God, that by your your spirit, we would understand you more and uh, that we would be able to uh, see how it is that you are moving us from ourselves, not toward ourselves. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, today we're going to break down this section, 1 Samuel 19, 11 through 24, into two parts. Verses 11 through 17 is the first part, Saul's plot unfolded. And the second part, 18 through 24, Saul's plan interrupted. Now, God is at work in David's life through this time. It's, it's a detour, absolutely. It is difficult for sure. He's at work in, in David's life. And God is at work in Saul's life as well. And I don't know if you're anything like me, but we have a tendency to identify with the heroes of the story. Whenever you're watching a movie or reading a story or something like that, we tend to identify with the hero of the story. That When the hero takes action or responds wisely or perseveres or, uh, or something like that, there is something within them that draws us to that. We're drawn to that idea where, where we see that you know, uh, there's, a, there's this picture of that hero of what should be, and we admire that, that that's how things should be. And this is great so long as it brings us to the end of ourselves where we see Jesus and not see it as a self-help seminar of this is what we should be like, or, well, you know, I just need to have more, uh, more fortitude. I just need to be more courageous. I just need to have more faith. I just need to read more of the Bible. I just need to pray more. That, that we, as long as we don't see it as I'm the hero and that's what I need to do, instead we see it as Jesus is the hero and he needs to rescue me, then it's a good thing. You see, Galatians 2.20 uh, says this, My old self has been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, you and I are not David. 
We're not David. We are Saul. We are naturally who Saul is, and we naturally do what Saul does. You see, unless we're willing to see ourselves as the villain, we will never see our need for Jesus to be the hero. Does that make sense? Even though we naturally identify with the hero, we need to identify with the hero in terms of pointing us to the need for Jesus as our Savior. That he's the one who was rejected and despised. That he was the one who laid down his life for the sake of us. And that we are the villain of the story in need of desperate rescue from the Lord. And so let's look at this first part together. Saul's plot unfolded, verses 11 through 17. Look back at verse 11. It says this. Saul also sent messengers to David's house to watch him and to kill him. You see, when Saul was selected as king, do you remember that all the way back in chapter 10? That when Saul was selected as king, he didn't really believe it, and he thought of himself as unworthy of such a title and a position. And that, that ended up proving to be not humility, but actually a false humility. I mean, how in, the, how in the world did Saul go from, I'm not worthy to have this, to now being in this place to say, I'm willing to do anything to keep this, up to and including murder, to, to murder David in order to keep this position that he has. You see, I'm sure murdering his son-in-law wasn't on, the, on his list of you know, life goals and achievements. You know, he's like thinking about, what do I want to do with my life? You know, one day I really hope to murder my son-in-law. I don't think that was on his list of things to do. He, he had drifted to this place. This is where he's at. And he got here when a satanic lie crept into his mind and he received it and nourished it. You are all day long being assaulted with satanic lies. Did you know that? That there is an assault on your mind of satanic lies. And, and if you receive those lies and if you nourish those lies, they will lead you down a road of self-destruction. You see, the lie typically sounds like this. You're a victim. You, you are not responsible for your sin. There's reasons and situations why. That, that it's okay for you to do this. That, that the lies feed your selfish ambition. They feed your envy. And this is a satanic tactic that's used not just then, but it's used on us today. And there's three main reasons why this satanic is used on you to assault your mind today. Number one, it's easy, right? It's a very easy thing to do. We are naturally self-centered. Okay, I'll talk for me. Maybe you're not like this, but I'm naturally self-centered. I am always on my mind. I love me a lot. I think about me every day, right? There's, there is something that's within us that's bent on ourselves. Our souls are aimed towards self. And so it's a very easy thing for the satanic attack to come against us to get us towards self. Number two, not only it's easy, but it's also simple. Just a simple nudge is all it takes to get us rolling down the hill of selfishness. It doesn't take very much at all. It's a very simple thing. We are actually actively looking to serve ourselves, and so Satan really doesn't have to do much to get us to go tumbling down that hill. And number three, it's, it's easy, it's simple, and it works. It works. Every, everyone deals with this. Even very mature believers struggle with self. So, so this is what Satan does. You see, when self, your pursuits, your things, your comforts, your desires, your ambitions, when that's the driving force of your life, then no wicked thing will be too far from your reach. I think it's a huge thing for us to grasp because our entire world is slanted toward enticing you with this. 
What are your dreams? What are your desires? What do you want? What, what, is, what is your pursuits? What are your things? What are your comforts? You see, when this is the way that you're thinking, then the ends will become justification for the means. Well, this is a good thing, right? Everyone said that my ambitions and my desires are a good thing, so how I get there must be okay as well. And then what happens is small compromises turn into massive sins. That's what takes place. You see, this is the philosophy and the psychology of the world. It's what it's aimed at. The pinnacle of life's purpose is self-fulfillment. That's what the world tells you. That's what's preached to you all day long. That's what's told to you in your career pursuits. That's what's told to you by the TV when they're telling you that that next thing is going to give you that fulfillment and that's what you need. But a biblical Christianity view is that the pinnacle of life's purpose is the glory of God, not the glory of me. So when I shift my mentality and I'm stop living for my glory, then everything else shifts in life. You see, whatever most glorifies God is what is most good for me. And so what does David do? He dodges Saul's spear in verse 10, and he leaves. He leaves the palace. You see there at the end of verse, uh, verse 10, it says, so David fled and escaped that night. He dodges Saul's spear, and he leaves the palace like all the times before, which is wild, right? Because this is now attempt number three on his life by Saul. Saul has thrown now three spears at David, and David didn't return the spear. I mean, we have some, some accounts of David throwing things with precision and accuracy at a giant, right? I mean, I think David could probably take that spear, and he's not going to miss Saul. He could throw the spear back, but he doesn't. He doesn't throw the spear back. Instead, he removes himself. This shows tremendous restraint and tremendous humility you know, I, I think he could justify, all right, Saul, I've given you three chances. I'm throwing this back now. But he doesn't. He doesn't. He just, he just removes himself. And so what does Saul do? He sends messengers. See that there in verse 11? Saul sends messengers to David's house to watch him and to kill him. They, they go to the house to finish the job. It's, it's like a, you know, a movie or a TV show where the, the guy that's, you know, the, the corrupt, uh, you know, rich guy, and he sends messengers to deliver a message to somebody. You know, it's like the nicely dressed thugs that show up. I got a message for you. You know, and there you got nice kids. I wouldn't want anything bad to happen to them. And that kind of a thing is going on, right? This, these are the kinds of messengers, okay? This, the, the, a better word for this, not, not a better word, but a way for us to understand this would be assassins. He sends a group of assassins to watch David and to murder him. Somehow, verse 12 his wife knows. Michal knows. Uh, verse 11, uh, read the rest of it. It says, uh, to kill him in the morning. And Michal, David's wife, told him, saying, if you do not save your life tonight, tomorrow you'll be killed. So Michal let David down through a window, and he went and fled and escaped. Somehow she knows. I, I don't know how she knows. Maybe she has informants in the, the, you know, the palace. Maybe she just knows her dad. This guy's wild. Maybe you know, she knows the assassins. She sees him creeping around outside. She's like, I know that guy. What's he doing here? This isn't a good thing. I don't know what it is, but she warns David, and David wisely heeds her warning and takes action. David Guzik says it like this. You know, sometimes men are so hard-headed or hard-hearted that they never hear how God might warn them through their wives. And all the wives are nudging their husbands right now. And God had a message for David through his wife. If David would have ignored this warning because he didn't like the source, he could have ended up dead. God had a message to David through Michal. You see, this moment 
This moment of David escaping and fleeing. This moment is the beginning of a 10 to 20 year exile, being on the run. This is a huge detour in David's life. He's going to escape Saul's constant murderous plots at this moment. This is where it all starts. And so what does Michal do? She stalls to give David time. Look at verse 13. So she took an image and laid it in the bed and put a cover of goat's hair for its head and covered it with with clothes. So she stalls in order to give David time to escape. And, uh, you know, basically makes it look like he's lying in bed so that the next morning uh, when they, you know, come and, and they're looking for him, she says, hey, look at, listen, he's, he's not feeling well. Uh, now, in this, notice it says there, image. Do you see that there? In, uh, what, what is it, verse uh, 13? Yeah, she, Mike, Michal took an image. Now, the word image there, this is, a very, this is a very generous and nice translation of this word. That same word throughout the Old Testament is used to describe household idols or images that people have as means of worshiping demons. Right? That, that's essentially what an idol is. That there are only really two types of worship. There's worship of the true and living God, and then there's demonic worship. That's all that there is. There's nothing else in between. Every other false belief system is demonic worship. I don't know if you've thought about that or put it into that category. Mormons might be nice people, but they're worshiping demons. Jehovah's Witnesses might be nice people, but they're worshiping demons. Right? The, the only true and living God is the God of the Bible. And so when we consider this reality, we've got to put it in terms of what's really taking place. And so she has this idol around the house. <laughs> like, why? That's a good question. Like, what, what is she doing with this? Because no God-honoring person should have anything to do with these kinds of things. And when we start messing with the demonic, we start inviting issues and problems into our lives. And so, I, you know, I don't know why she has an idol to begin with, let alone a man-sized idol. That's a kind of crazy idea. Perhaps it was just the bust, you know, the shoulders up, and then she used pillows for the rest of the body. I don't know, but she's got a giant idol uh, in, in the house. And maybe this was, do you remember when Saul said that uh, Michal would become a snare to David? Maybe this is what he meant. Maybe he knew this about her. Maybe he knew about this compromise within her heart. And every time we read about Michal, she's always got this sort of compromise happening within her that she never really pursues the Lord. You see, this is messing with demonic things, and it's nothing that the servants of God should be dealing with. Verse 14, so when, uh, when Saul sent the messengers to take David, she said, he's sick. So, so in the morning, David doesn't come out, so the assassins must have knocked on the door or something, and they end up talking to Michal, and she says that he's sick, and she points to the lump in the bed, and they're like, whoa, I, I'm really not into getting sick. Uh, just like probably all of us, you know, when somebody is sick around you, you treat them like they have the plague, especially after 2020, you know, like you are yucky, you know, and you're over there and you stay away. And so then, you know, they go back to Saul and Saul's like, I don't care about this guy's comfort. Like, so bring him to me in his bed so I can kill him is what Saul says. See that there in verse 15, Saul sent the messengers back to see David saying, bring him up to me in the bed that I may kill him. You see, he doesn't care about David's comfort. He doesn't care if David's not having a good day. He doesn't care if David's not feeling well because murderous intent is filling his heart. So he says, get, get David in the entire bed. Bring him back to me. I mean, what kind of arrogant, egocentric maniac thinks this way? This is wild that he says, just bring the whole bed to me. Think, think about this for a minute from the other side. Think about how many times God's grace has provided for you in ways that you didn't even ask for or couldn't have thought of. 
What if David was sick? What if he wasn't feeling well? What if he was bedridden? What if when Michal was letting him out the window, what if she dropped him and he broke his leg? What if the assassins happened to be on the side where the window was and they saw the whole thing happen? I mean, think about all the things that could have possibly gone wrong and the way that God had met with David and provided for David before he could have even asked for it. It's kind of a crazy thing to think about that, she's, that, that God has provided for them in this way. Verse 17, Then Saul said to Michal, Why have you deceived me like this and sent my enemy away so that he has escaped? Michal answered and said, he said to me, let me go. Why should I kill you? See, Saul is so blinded by himself that he, number one, considers David, who is his greatest ally, to be his greatest enemy. See that there? He calls David his enemy. I mean, why? What exactly has David done except serve him? The only thing that that has happened is that God has established David as the man who would take Saul's throne because Saul has forfeited it. And now Saul's trying to hold on to it with everything he has, and he calls David his, his enemy. And secondly, not only does he consider David his enemy, but he also questions his daughter's loyalty because she saves her husband's life. Like this is, what? She, Saul is expecting this, this young woman to now betray her husband just because he feels like killing this guy? Saul is so far gone that he can't even see his crazy. But not only that, but Michal actually shows herself to be Saul's daughter. Did you notice her, her response? She totally lies. She makes up this whole story about how, you know, David, he held this knife to my throat and he said, I'll kill you if you don't let me go and help me escape. Like, what are you talking about? Why is she doing this? She, she doesn't need to slander David in order to escape Saul's fury. And all it does, all she does is by perpetuating this this story of slander about David, she adds fuel to Saul's fire as to why he would hate David more. You see, do you remember when Jonathan, earlier in this chapter, he actually confronts Saul about all this? Jonathan does the same thing. He confronts Saul and reasons with Saul, and he opposes Saul, and yet he keeps his integrity. It is quite possible to not stir up the, you know, the, the provoke the bear or stir up the bee's nest, without losing your integrity. But this is where the cover-up now become, for David now becomes her sin, where, where she now slanders him and dives into this sinful thing. Not only do we so, see Saul's plot unfolded, but Saul's plan is interrupted in verses 18 through 24. Look at verse 18, it says this, So David fled and escaped and went to Samuel and Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and stayed in Naoth. Consider for a minute, a moment what David has lost. Think about this for a minute. Just put yourself in David's shoes. All of this tension, all of this pressure, all of this insanity coming upon you. David is literally losing everything. He's lost his wife. He's lost his home. He's lost his job. He's lost his position. He's lost his friends. All of his social interaction goes away. From here, he literally goes on the run. He's lost everything. Think about the amount of stress and pressure is on David's heart in this moment. How difficult is this to navigate? How hard is this to, to, to endure? You see, in this moment of 
overwhelming fear and grief and loss, David has a critical decision to make. What's he going to do? And what he does is he turns to the Lord. You see, David needs God in a crazy way like he's never needed God before. And instead of just trying to figure out on his own, trying to reach out with his own ingenuity, trying to come up with a plan, trying to retaliate, whatever it is, instead he goes to the Lord. And he says, God, I need you. I need you to help me. In difficult times, where do we turn? Do you turn to yourself or do you turn to Jesus? You see, Colossians 2.3 says this. It says, in whom, it's speaking of Jesus, in whom, whom is Jesus, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. This is a big deal. This is a big concept. All the treasures, how, how much is all, by the way? All in the all. All, all in the Greek is, is all. It's, there's no other word for it. It's all, okay? So you can't look up a Greek word and say, well, most things. No, it's everything. All the treasures of what? Wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Jesus. This means that all the wisdom and knowledge that you need is found in Jesus. Why? Because he's literally the one who created it. Okay? Even down to the, the wisdom and knowledge you might... Some, sometimes we take this and we go, yeah, that makes sense for my spiritual life. But then we compartmentalize our spiritual life and we think for our practical life or our daily life that this isn't, this isn't the way it works. No, Jesus has all the wisdom and knowledge that you need for everything that you would ever endure in life, everything you would encounter in life. Every, every practical thing that you could go through. Here's a, just an example from my own life. I remember when we were first planting this church that I uh, got a job working for Comcast. I was literally the cable guy, and I had the creepy van to go with it as well. Like the van where you're like, I'm not sure I want that guy in my house. Like I had that van. All right, so I'm doing installs, and eventually, inevitably, I would run into some crazy problems, some serious issues uh, that, that I would run into, and I'm, I'm struggling. I'm spending all this time and effort trying to figure out how to solve this problem and figure it out, especially when I was installing security systems. And, and as I was doing this, uh, I would run into these issues, and then I would cry out to the Lord, God, help me to figure this out. I, I, I don't want to just kind of patch it up and, and not do it right or do it well and lose my integrity or not, not you know, take care of these. This is this people's security system. I don't want it to actually be secure, right? It's not secure. And I'm like, hey, it's, it's good. I just hope nothing bad happens. No, that's, that's on me. So I want to do it well. I want to do it right. And I'm praying the Lord would give me the wisdom and the insight to know how to handle it. And, and every single time he did, every single time he did, he did it through different ways. Sometimes he would give me an idea that I never had before. Sometimes he would have a supervisor call me with a, another thing to think about or whatever, but God always came through. You see, all of the wisdom and knowledge you need is found in Jesus because it originates in him. Look at verse 19. Now it was told Saul, saying, Take note, David is in Naoth in Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David. And when they, the group, uh, when they saw the group of prophets prophesying and Samuel standing as leader over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. And Saul, sent, Saul was told and sent other messengers, and they prophesied likewise. Then Saul sent messengers again a third time, and they prophesied also. Essentially, Saul has eyes everywhere. David can't go anywhere. He can't do anything without somebody knowing. And eventually, the report gets back that David is in this certain place, in this certain town. He's near uh, the, the city that uh, uh, Samuel lives in, and uh, he's in this area called Naoth. Now, 
The word naoth, it, it literally means dwellings. Um, and this is just an aside, just, just this kind of like information just for you to have if you're wondering. Uh, it means dwellings, and it, it's most likely uh, like a dormitory type thing where uh, Samuel had a school of prophets. And so he would train up and teach other prophets, and so this is where they kind of lived. It's like Bible college, basically, and so that's where, that's where David is at. And so notice there in verse 20, there's this idea of the prophets prophesying, and then also that Saul's assassins prophesied. Now, the word prophesied or prophesying, uh, that can have multiple meanings, all right? So there can be, it can mean multiple things. It could be predicting the future, right? Like when you think about a lot of the prophets in the Old Testament, you read Isaiah and Ezekiel, and they have these foretellings of the future of what's going on out there. It can also mean forthtelling to say what God is saying in this supernatural way of his spirit, to speak by the spirit of God. It can also mean, this word can also mean to praise God or to sing uh, songs to the Lord. And so essentially what we see here happening is it's not necessarily that these guys are all sitting around telling the future. It's that this is like a really amazing prayer meeting that's going on. That they're singing to the Lord, that they're praying to the Lord, that God's giving special words of knowledge, special words of encouragement are coming through, and God is moving in these supernatural, tremendous, and powerful ways. And so what does Saul do? He sends three waves of assassins to go kill David, and each time, God's presence overwhelms them, and God provides protection for David and for Samuel and these prophets by turning warriors into worshipers. Every single time. That, that here, David doesn't go to Samuel and say, how can we raise an army? How can we get enough men so that I can stave off this attack from Saul? Instead, he goes to Samuel and Samuel says, let's have a prayer meeting. Let's seek the Lord. And as they seek the Lord, and something that seems unconventional to us and sort of foolish from a, a pragmatic perspective, it's actually the most important thing they could have done. They just... They just pray to the Lord. And as they do, waves of attack come, and they can't even get to the point to where they would attack David and Saul or Samuel. There's no, there's no point. There's no hope for it at all that God overwhelms the, the attack and provides this, this uh, protection supernaturally. Now, it's not directly stated here, but it seems to be implied that these assassins, they got there and that they didn't leave. Like, they stayed there as worshipers and continued worshiping. And then another group of assassins came and they stayed. And so this group of prophets prophesying, this group of people worshiping the Lord is growing uh, by the people that Saul is sending. Essentially, they're, they're converted uh, into worshipers of the Lord. Now notice verse 22. It says, This then he, this is Saul, also went to Ramah and came to the great well that is in Seku. And he asked and said, where are Samuel and David? And someone said, Indeed, they're in Naoth and Ramah. So he went there to Naoth and Ramah. Then the Spirit of God was upon him also. And he went on and prophesied until he came to Naoth in Ramah. And so here, all, you know, all of, all of Saul's assassins are failing at their task because the Spirit of God. And this should have been a massive wake-up call for, Sam, for Saul, right? Like I send all these assassins, these, these tough guys, these brutes, and none of them come back. What's going on? Is David killing all these men? Uh, what's happening? Well, I'm sure he's getting report back. No, they're, they're singing with David. They're praying with David. Like, I don't know. I don't know, Saul. This is weird. And so what does Saul do? Well, he sends more and he sends more. And then he finally says, if you want something done right, 
you got to do it yourself. And so he decides he's going to go down. Not seeing God is at work in this and that he's actually resisting and fighting the Lord. He's so bent on himself that he goes down himself. And the Holy Spirit, verse 23, comes upon Saul as he's traveling. He doesn't even, God doesn't even wait till he gets there. He's prophesying all the way there as, as he goes. Skip Heitzig says this, and, and I totally agree with him. He says this, I believe that God in his mercy was trying to reach out to Saul, to bring him to repentance, to stir him back up, to bring him back to the Lord. You see, in this moment, God is overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly declaring, not just through these assassins that have gone out, but also through Saul himself and the Spirit of God coming upon him. God is overwhelmingly declaring to Saul, I'm in charge, not you. You're not in charge, Saul. I know you think you have all this power because you have this authority. I know you think you're in charge because you're the king. I know that you think you have groups of people who do your bidding because you said to go do it, but you're not in charge. I am. But Saul wouldn't hear that. He, he was unwilling to hear it. And so God has to bring this humility into the heart of Saul. I wonder if in this moment, Saul remembered how the Holy Spirit was upon him earlier in his life. That when he became king and he was anointed king, the Holy Spirit came upon him in tremendous and powerful ways. That when God's people needed deliverance, that the Holy Spirit came upon him. I wonder if, if this was a, like a, a moment where he remembered it and he longed for the, the presence of God. Or... I wonder if it enraged him because he was unable to carry out the plan that he had. That he was so angry uh, and, and filled with murderous intent toward David that now he's mad that God wouldn't let him carry out his, his, uh, his desires. So what does he do? Well, he gets there, verse 24, and he stripped off his clothes and prophesied before Samuel in like manner and lay down naked all day and all, uh, and all that night. Therefore, they say, is Saul also among the prophets? Now, li listen, if someone says, hey, I want to have a prayer meeting and I want to kind of fashion it after 1 Samuel chapter 19, don't go, okay? Like, naked prayer meetings aren't what we're going for, okay? Like, that's, what in the world is going on here? I, when I first read this, you know, uh, again, I was like, man, this is weird. What am I going to say? And so as I looked into this, Here's, here's really what this, what this comes down to. The, word, the idea that he stripped off his clothes and naked, this, it's not directly stated, but, it, but within this definition is that we would say down to his underwear, like his undergarments kind of a thing. They took off his garments. Here's what's happening. Saul has come in his pride, in his arrogance, in his power, and he gets there, and all that's removed. You see, the garments would be, would be kingly robes. That gets removed in the presence of God. You, you don't come to God in your own strength, in your own ability, in your own awesomeness, in all of your achievements. No, when you're in God's presence, all of that is removed. And then what does he do? He lays on the ground. This, this prostrate uh, uh, position of humility that Saul refused to humble himself. He refused to take himself and put himself low. And so what, is it, what happens? God humbles him. And here's the hard part. If God has to bring humility into our lives, it's typically going to be humiliating. It's going to hurt a lot worse. If we'll humble ourselves, yeah, that's going to hurt. It's going to hurt your pride. It's going to, it's going to take a dig at your ego. It's going, to, it's going to be difficult. But if God has to do it, it's going to be way worse. It's going to be way worse. And so now here, here's this royal, regal king, stripped of his 
title, stripped of his position, stripped of his authority, stripped of, of all the things would I, that would identify him as, as amazing, laying on the ground. What a crazy thing. James 4, 6 says it like this. And he gives grace generously, as the scripture said, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Here's something that's interesting about this verse. That word opposes, it literally means to be at war with. I don't know about you, but I don't want God at war with me. I don't want to put myself in a position where in my pride, I'm now at war with the Lord. Instead, I want to put myself in a position where I receive his grace. Do you see how it's positions? That I get to choose where my position is. If I choose to be operating in my arrogance and my pride, I'm at war with God. But if instead I choose to humble myself, what does it say? He gives grace to the humble. Do you need God's grace? Do you need God's ability? Do you need God's power? Do you need God's wisdom? Do you need God's knowledge? Do you need God's direction? Humility is the way to get it. Not by trying to come up with the idea yourself and saying, here, God, I figured it out. Just do what I want to do. No, that's not it. It's humble yourself before the Lord, and in due time, he will lift you up. That he's the one who does that. He gives grace to the humble. You see, sometimes the road that God takes you down will be a detour that's more painful than you want. And it takes longer than you had hoped. Both David and Saul are on this detour right now. God interrupted both of their plans. God interrupted both of their lives. But here's the thing. Selfish ambition and envy will drive you into sins that once seemed impossible. Saul, Saul didn't have on his list of things to do, let's go murder my son-in-law, but his selfish ambition and envy led him there. If David was to allow his own selfish ambition, his own envy, his desire for himself to rule his life, he would be led down the road of sin. He wouldn't be in this position where God and his grace was providing for him in these miraculous ways. You see, coming to the end of yourself where you exalt and glorify Jesus is far more important than your comforts, than your pleasures, than your desires, and your dreams. You and your life, the greatest thing you could do with it is exalt and glorify Jesus. So here's the question. Will you trust Jesus with your life? Will you, will you submit to his way? Will you submit to his will? Will you say, God, what's your design? What's your desire? Not here's mine and you got to do it, but instead, what do you want from me? What did you make me for? What am I, how am I fulfilling your plan for my life and, and the way you've created me? The only way to get that is through submission to Jesus, to recognize that his death, his burial, his resurrection was for you, that he took your place. That, that the life that he has laid out for you, it, it may be hard in terms of the world standards, but it's way better than anything else you could do. That, that his way is really the only way worth going. So will you submit to Jesus? Or will you harden your heart and end up in a position like Saul? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word today. God, we thank you for the opportunity to open it, to study it, to consider it. We pray that you would give us soft hearts toward you, that we would abandon ourselves, we would abandon envy, we would abandon our pride, and instead we would just humbly come to you. Lord, give us the faith to trust you. Give us the courage to follow you. And give us the ability to honor you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.